let's turn to John chapter 19. I want to look at this passage together uh, this morning. There have been many, many famous deaths over the course of world history. We might think of the stabbing of Julius Caesar, or the assassination of John F. Kennedy, or the guillotining of Marie Antoinette, or the poisoning of Cleopatra. But we don't refer to them as the stabbing, or the assassination, or the guillotining, or the poisoning. But we call this event the crucifixion. It wasn't the only one. There were thousands of crucifixions over the course of Roman history. Several thousand slaves were crucified after the rebellion of Spartacus alone. And yet there is something unique about this event, something that marks it out as different. And it's not that Jesus was a big player in the first century. He certainly wasn't bigger than Julius Caesar. But he was a nobody from a nowhere village in the nowhere province, in the back and beyond of the Roman Empire, executed by a nobody of a middle-level politician. And yet this single crucifixion is denoted by the term the crucifixion. There is something about this death that continues to reverberate down through the millennia and across the world. Of no other death, one writer says, in human history can this be said. And so we come to the crucifixion. In a sense, it's a story perhaps that most of us, if not all of us, have known extremely well. I came across an account from a fellow minister about a couple who were reading the gospel for the first time. And they've been reading through it and meeting with him and they came to, to, they were in Mark's gospel and they came to the last third as the pace begins to pick up and he had sent them home from the meeting to, to read on to find out what happened. And the, the husband was tired, he went to bed, but the wife, she stayed up to, to read on from Mark chapter 14. And there she was introduced to the conspiracy to put Jesus to death. But at the back of her mind, she thought, well, surely that'll not really happen. She got ticked off at Judas, and who wouldn't, but she kind of got it because she too had been betrayed by friends. and She, she wasn't surprised that that sort of thing could happen. And finally, when Jesus was taken and tried by the Jews and handed over to the Romans and treated harshly, she still thought that somehow Jesus is going to escape, to, to wrestle free and to triumph. She didn't know how, but she had such a high view of Jesus by this stage that she was certain he would vindicate himself. And then she came to that phrase, they crucified him. At this stage, it was early, the early hours of the morning, but she started to tear up and her tears became stronger and she started to wail inconsolably and, and down in the, the bedroom, her husband was awakened by this sobbing and he came running down uh, to the room and, and he asked her, what's wrong, what's wrong? And she could hardly speak. The, the, the sobs 
racked her body, and she eventually he, he consoled her and calmed her down, and between the gasps, when he was asking her, what's wrong, what's wrong? She said, they killed him. They killed him. And it took more time yet for her to explain that it was Jesus. It was Jesus that she meant. Imagine coming that fresh to the crucifixion. In these 13 verses, John is going to take us through the six hours of the crucifixion. He's going to do it with five portraits, five scenes, five snapshots. There is a big theme that runs through it. Salvation is accomplished. It is finished. It is completed. But each portrait adds to the picture. Let's look at picture number one. Judgment is born. Picture number one. Judgment is born. We read in verse 16. So this is what the soldiers did. Or rather, sorry, verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Look at the picture John paints. We see Jesus, and he's carrying his own cross. That probably just refers to the cross beam, not the entire cross. The upright portion was either uh, lying on the ground ready for Jesus to be fastened to it out at Golgotha or maybe even vertically upright in the ground for him to be hoisted up onto it. He carries his cross. Yes, later on he will stumble and fall and a man coming in from the countryside whom we know to be Simon of Cyrene will carry the cross beam the rest of the way but John paints this portrait for us of Jesus initially carrying the cross. And then they were told he went out. So see in the portrait, see, see the city gate of Jerusalem and Jesus coming out through it. He's coming out of the city. These are significant words. And we're told they crucified him and with him two others. See, see there uh, in the distance, the outline perhaps of, of three stakes silhouetted against the sky ready to receive Christ and, and two others to be crucified. It is the bare minimum of detail. They are words without melodrama. They do not play on our emotions. There is no graphic description of a crucifixion. There is no great focus on the physicality of the sufferings. But in a few words, John gives us our focus. He wants us to see Jesus bearing the cross. He wants us to see Jesus going out of the city. And he wants us to see Jesus crucified with two other men. Because in those three things we see Jesus bearing our judgment. See him carrying the cross. There's the burden of bearing the punishment for our sin. It's not simply the cross. It's, it's the burden of bearing the punishment for our sin. God had said, Cursed is anyone hung on a tree, and here is the Son bearing the tree, carrying it, because he is going to become accursed so that we would never be. He is going to bury or to bear 
the wrath of God. The cross is the, the external symbol of that wrath that he's going to bear. And he takes it to himself. He carries the cross. He bears it. That's what he's going to do for you and for me. And he goes outside the city. Behind him, see the, the outline of Jerusalem, the outline on, on the, the mount of, of the temple. There the temple was. There was the city of God. There was the Holy of Holies, God's place. And Jesus is going out, out of the city. Distance is being put between him and the holy place. It was appropriate back in the, the Old Testament. The, whenever the great sacrifice of atonement was offered, we read in Leviticus 16.27, the bull and the goat for the sin offerings, those or whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement must be taken outside the camp. Here is Jesus going outside the city. He is the sacrifice of atonement, the sin offering. In Hebrews 13, the writer applies this to Jesus. The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. You see, in the Old Testament, God dwelt in the midst of his people and there were, as it were, radiating circles of, of holiness going out from the centre. But the, the unclean, those who had diseases and who were ceremonially unclean, had to go outside the camp. It was a sign and a symbol of being unfit to be in God's presence, of rejection and distance from God. And here is God the Son going outside the city. He went out. He is being excluded so that we can be included. And John tells us in this portrait that he is executed with two others. As one of the people deemed so unworthy, so depraved as to merit crucifixion, he to use Isaiah's words, is numbered with the transgressors. Here's the holy Son of God hanging on a cross with two common criminals. Why is it? Well, it's for us. He's bearing our sin. He was made sin for us. And so he's with the sinners. How do you know that the Son of God took your sin? We'll see him here. In the middle of sinners. That's him on the cross. Taking the punishment sinners deserve. God the Son. Numbered with the transgressors. So that we could be counted with the righteous. Here's the burden that Christ bore for his people. Judgment. Separation. And sin. We've got five portraits to look at. We could spend all day standing before each one. And maybe we should take one each day this week and, and go before it in our mind's eye so that we have impressed on us the wonder and the solemnity of what Christ has done. Judgment has been born for you.
Here we see the burden Christ bore. But let's move to picture number two that John gives us. Picture number two, an announcement is made. The next thing that John tells us about is that Pilate has affixed a notice to the cross. The, the camera zooms in onto the cross above Jesus' head and, and there's a notice there. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it kicks up controversy. The Jewish leaders, having trekked out of the city, thinking that they've triumphed, the smile is wiped off their faces as they see the notice on the cross. And they scurry back to Pilate and they say, that's not what we want. They, they get that Pilate is mocking them. He's mocking the Jewish people. Here's your king. And we Romans have humiliated you people and your king. And Pilate will not change his mind. He says, what I have written, I have written. But note what John tells us. He says, many of the Jews read this sign. For the city where Jesus was, or for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. It was a public announcement. And it was to be understood globally. It was written in three languages. The local language, Aramaic. The official language, Latin. And the common language of the entire empire, Greek. Pilate meant it as a message of ridicule, but he did better than he knew, just as Caiaphas had spoken better than he knew when he said it was better for one man to die on behalf of the entire nation. What was happening at the cross was indeed for the whole world. When Jesus was born, the wise men had asked, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Mary had been told, that her son would reign on the throne of his father David. Joseph had been told to call his name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And this is the king. Here is the king. It's a very different sort of a throne, isn't it? But it's his throne. It's from this throne that he is rescuing his people from their sins. This, in one sense, is the king's coronation day. He wears a crown, albeit a crown of thorns. But here he is rescuing the world. And what happens at the cross is in fact to be announced to the whole world. The king has come and here he is in his kingly activity rescuing. And Pilate announced it to the world. It's a message for the world. This is the king you all need. Is a little foretaste of what would come as the gospel would be announced to all the nations of the world. That's our second picture. A gospel for the world. An announcement for the world. Our third picture. Every detail was foretold. John wants us to see something else here. The camera moves down from the, the notice at the top of the cross to the soldiers at the base of the cross. A standard part of the humiliation of crucifixion was that they crucified a man naked. And so here is at the bottom of the cross the soldiers with Jesus' garments, his cloak, his tunic undergarment, his loincloth, his belt, his sandals, and they divide them out between them. But there's this seamless undergarment. And rather than hacking it to bits, they don't want to tear it. 
these rough-hewn soldiers do the natural thing for them. They gamble for it. I don't know what John felt when he saw his saviour's tunic being gambled for. I wonder if he and the, the, the woman there were perhaps horrified. But as he reflects on it, he's certainly not horrified. He's amazed. For a thousand years before these events, that very action was predicted. He records for us, this happened, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did, he says. David had written in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and feet. My bones are in display. People stare and gloat at me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. What an astonishing thing. You know, imagine an event in 2020 that isn't particularly of global significance. This was not of global significance. Yes, spiritually it was, but it wasn't of global significance. They weren't talking about it across the empire. It's just a, a little event in Jerusalem. But imagine in a thousand years ago, 1066 at the Battle of, of Hastings, somebody foretold that there would be an event in 2020. We would be astonished at that event being foretold. That's the sort of thing that we have here. But it's not the only detail. John is at pains to point out that as Jesus goes to the cross, he is not some sort of victim uh, shuttled along from, by powers outside his control. Over and over again he says, this happened so that these words would be fulfilled. Whether it was words Jesus had spoken about Judas' betrayal, whether it was words spoken by Jesus about the kind of death he would die, chapter 18, verse 32. Or whether it's just in the, the allusions John makes to other parts of Scripture. Or in these open statements, verse 24, this happened that Scripture might be fulfilled. John wants us to see that a plan is being fulfilled. Yes, it's the Romans casting the lots, but it is God directing the events. The Jews thought they were getting rid of Jesus and his offensive claim to be the Messiah. But all they were doing was confirming step by step by step that he was the long predicted Messiah. Cast your eye down to, to verse 28 later, knowing that all was now to complete and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. We sang from Psalm 22 verse 15, which spoke of his mouth being dried up like a, a piece of broken pottery, his tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth. It's not the only psalm that speaks of it. Psalm 69 verse 21 is more specific. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Read verse 29. Do you see what it says? A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge in a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Even the minute details were foretold. And as we come closer to the climax, John increases his reminders that this was done in fulfilment of either scripture or what Jesus himself said. We should be amazed and dumbfounded 
at the precision of the predictions, but more so that this was so meticulously planned. Your salvation is no haphazard last-minute rescue plan. It is finished, Jesus will say. Everything that was planned, everything that was foretold, everything that was put in place, this should give us great confidence in the certainty of our salvation. It was planned. In the truth of Scripture, it was all foretold. It should give us great confidence in the certainty of God in our own lives. No detail, no matter how small, is outside his control. Picture number three. Everything was planned. Portrait number four. Tender care was shown. John turns the camera round from the cross to those standing near the cross. Although I detest the word selfie, we would have to, with the utmost of reverence, say that John here takes a selfie. We're told that there were four there were four women and the disciple Jesus loved. Who is the disciple Jesus loved? Well, if we put the Gospels together, we find that it's in John's Gospel that this phrase is used. It's, it's a word that, that speaks of brotherly love and, and gracious love, deep affection. And comparing the Gospels, it's clear that it's John himself. Yes, there were 12 disciples chosen from amongst many who, who followed Jesus. Uh, there were three within that who were a special uh, subset who had Jesus' close attention. But then there's one, John, who seems to have been, as it were, Jesus' closest and, and best of friends. And he's here at the foot of the cross with a group of women, four women. Perhaps in John's mind, these four women mirror the four soldiers, four indifferent soldiers and four committed women. Four unbelieving men and four believing women. But in this moment, what John wants us to hear and see is the wonderfully tender words that Jesus speaks to his mother. Dear woman, here is your son. Dear woman, here is your son. He designates John to take care of his mother. Joseph, her husband, his father seems to have died. There's no mention of him after Jesus turns 12. Jesus was the eldest son and his mother's care was his responsibility. And now he turns to John, having said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. He says, here is your mother to John. Jesus, the perfect son, sees that his mother will be cared for. We might wonder why not to his brothers. He had at least four brothers, but at this stage they're hostile to him. And it would seem as if his mother has moved in her belief to see who her son is. And here is this, this son keeping the fifth commandment to honour his father and mother. It's part of his perfect righteousness, even as he dies. He's not just fulfilling the predictions, but he's keeping the law perfectly. And if Pilate's notice gives an international focus, a global focus to our salvation, 
These verses give a very personal focus. Here is Jesus to his people. What's he like? He's saving the world, but he's focused on the individual. He's tender and loving. One writer says there is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus, in the agony of the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother in the days when he was taken away. And this snapshot gives us insight into the heart of our Saviour, his tender care for his people, his focus. If he can show such care when in the midst of such agony, physical and spiritual agony, how much more will he show now to his people as he sits on his throne? You can be sure of the tender care of your Saviour. That's what he's like. There's a window into his heart, his care for you. Whatever you're going through, you can be sure of that tender care being poured out on you. As an aside, it's interesting to note that it is John who takes Mary under his wing and not the other way around. Any who would want to give Mary an exalted place in the church need to see what's recorded here. From that day on, this disciple took her into his home. The fourth portrait. Now we come to the final portrait in this gallery. Picture number five. A finished task. A finished task. Verses 28 to 30 later, knowing that everything had now been completed. And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We'll not take time to think about him saying, I am thirsty, because Johnny is looking at, at those sayings from the cross at our communion times. And we'll come to this one in more detail. But just think for a moment of the maker of the oceans and the rivers and the rain saying, I thirst. Why? It's for you and for me that he is on that cross. But John's account of the crucifixion culminates in these mighty words. It is finished. It is finished. It is a sense of completion, of mission accomplished. It is finished. What is finished? What is accomplished? What is completed? All that was foretold was finished right down to that last mouthful of wine vinegar. Everything written about the Messiah was complete. It's as if Jesus is ticking off all those passages that had painted a picture of his life and death. And he's ticking them off in his mind's eye and he, he takes that drink and he marks off Psalm 16 and he says, it's finished, it's finished, everything is done. All that was foretold was completed. All that was prefigured from Genesis to Malachi is completed. See, it wasn't just predictions. There were pictures in every sacrifice in the Old Testament, in every feast, in everything that happened in every event. There was a, a picture being painted, a prefiguring of what Jesus would do from Isaac's sacrifice to the Passover lamb 
in the Exodus, in, in, in the book of Exodus in Egypt, to the story of David and Goliath and every prophet, every priest, every king, every rescuer that had foreshadowed the Messiah in every way. He has fulfilled what they had pointed to. It is finished. Even in these verses we see the echoes of completion from the very beginning of the story. At the beginning, the first Adam had gone to a tree and brought sin into the world and brought shame to his nakedness. And now the last Adam goes to the tree in nakedness and shame to rescue the world from the first Adam's sin and from every subsequent Adam's sin. The story started in Genesis 3 is in one sense finished. And as God finished the work of creation on the sixth day and rested on the Sabbath, so Jesus on the sixth day of the week finishes his great work that will bring about the new creation and he is going to rest. We read that he bowed his head. In Luke 9, Jesus had said, the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. It's the same word. Nowhere to bow his head. And now he's found that place. And it's on a cross. And now at last he can rest. For he has done everything. And now he can rest his head in peace. And he dismisses his spirit. It's not simply a way of saying he died. It underlines for us that he was in charge even in this moment and he had done everything that was needed. Everything that was prefigured was finished. Everything that was required by the Father was finished. He had said in John 17, 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. All that was necessary for our salvation, every law kept, every temptation resisted, every sin paid for, and now he bows his head and he gives up his spirit for everything is done. It is finished. It's the greatest word ever uttered. Salvation is complete. It requires no addition, no work on our part. It took the very lifeblood of the Son of God to accomplish it. You know, how wicked a thing it is then to think that we could get to heaven under our own steam or in some sort of partnership with he who has done everything as if we're saying to him, well, you didn't quite do enough. You need me to top up what you've done. What an awful blasphemy to think that we could add to it or act instead of it. It is finished. Words that bring the greatest certainty for those who come to this king in repentance and faith. You get to hear him say to you, I've done it all. It's done. It's done for you. Oh, Christian, how thankful we should be. Walk around this picture gallery. Look at it. Judgment is born. The message has come to you in your language. It's a global message and you've heard it. God is in charge of everything. Every detail of your life, he has planned out. 
He wastes nothing. He cares tenderly for you. And everything, everything is done. Everything is done so that when you come to this moment to rest your head, you can have confidence. For you can hear your Saviour say, it's finished. It's finished. It's all done. So that we can enter into God's presence. And oh, my dear friend, if you're watching this morning and you're not a Christian, hear these words. It is finished. Like the preparations for a great banquet, all is prepared and ready. Will you come? He offers to bear your sin and your judgment and your separation and your cross. He offers to stand in your shoes, to be numbered amongst the transgressors so that you can be numbered with the righteous. He is the king, promised and prophesied. Will you bow before him and make him your king? He would speak to you with that same tenderness he spoke to his mother and say, not to a disciple, but to his father, and say, here is your son. Here is your daughter. Father, take them into your home. And look after them forever. He would say to you. It is finished. If you would entrust yourself to him. And you would have peace. For all of this life. And for all eternity. But the flip side of it is. If you won't do that. Then for all eternity. There will never be a moment. When you will say. It is finished. It will go on. And on and on in all its awfulness, as you will have to bear the punishment that Christ offers to bear here for you. He is the King who accomplishes salvation and he holds it out to you today. Will you come to him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the King and his great salvation. We marvel, we marvel at the, just the very fact that God would take on flesh and blood so that, that flesh and blood could suffer and die in the place of us who deserve to die. And we thank you for Jesus, the, the Alpha and the Omega, the very God of very God, the, the light of the world, the creator of the universe. We thank you that he bore our sins in his body to the tree. We thank you that he, being who he was, was numbered with the transgressors. We thank you that he completed his work and that he rested his head on a cross, on a cross, so that we could rest our head when we come to that last resting place and we could lie down in peace. And we thank you for him. And we pray, Lord God, for any listening who don't know him as their saviour, that they would come today to put their trust in such a saviour. Lord, we ask these things for Jesus' honour and for Jesus' glory, so that the world might see how great the King on the cross is and how great his finished work is. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.